Copy this. Big Thinking Local Climate Action. We hear a lot about what we can do individually to reduce our carbon footprint, whether we're flying less or eating less meat. But one topic gets far less attention than it really should, and that's how we can reduce our general consumption of consumer goods, and particularly electronic consumer goods. However, it turns out that people are really very concerned about this, and it's one of the most popular measures that we'd like our government and our local authority to take action on. So although many of us have tried and found it difficult to recycle electronic goods, there are some projects out there and some authorities out there that are actually doing some transformational things, and we're about to hear from them. I'm Amanda Carpenter. And I'm Rick Casali, and we are your hosts for Copy This, a new podcast from Carbon Copy about big thinking local climate action. And in this episode, which is about the circular economy, we're joined by Fiona Deer, who's co-director of the Restart Project, and Emma Beale, who's managing director of West London Waste Authority. Welcome, Fiona and Emma. Emma, perhaps I could start by asking you why electronic waste in particular is the fastest growing type of waste? Uh, That's a very good question. And I think our role as waste managers means that we get to see what's actually happening um, with sort of the bellwether of society and how wasteful people are being. So we can see that uh, electronic waste is growing. But the reasons why, um, I'm probably guessing as much as anybody else. Um, It's part of the communication revolution. It's described sometimes as the new industrial revolution. And we also see not just in electronic waste, but in other waste streams that are coming in our direction, there are deliberate strategies to get people to buy more. So there are drivers that mean that we need to buy more, to purchase more, to use more, to create more. And that sort of feeds into our desire for growth. Um, But the flip side of that is quite often that we throw away more. So our interest then is thinking about how do we make those things last longer? How big a problem is it, Emma? I mean, you you know, you say it's a growing element. I mean, how big is the kind of waste issue? You, you, You sit in a sort of West London Waste Authority's kind of works on behalf of, of six London councils. What sorts of volumes are we talking about in, in your part of London and your patch? Um, if we add together the total amount of rubbish and recycling across all of West London in a year, it's, it's probably um, as big as a tenth of that. Um, the good news is, is that most electronic waste is being recycled, um, but the the not so good thing is that sometimes that can lull us into a false sense of security that we're doing the right thing. And actually what we're doing is we're just growing this waste stream. And so um, we need to reuse more of it and reduce the amount of recycling that we're doing. There's a there's a great stat globally about um, about e-waste, which is um, I think this year we're on track for 60 million tonnes of e-waste globally, which is um, roughly equivalent to the weight of the Great Wall of China. So I find that a great way of kind of visualising just how much electronics we're throwing away. 
And that's just the waste. So if we think back into the production, the amount that's being produced every year, which is terrifying, really, isn't it, Fiona? Because because not only is it a very carbon intensive process, um, it's actually quite a damaging process because of some of the raw materials and the minerals that go into a lot of electronic goods um, and and a lot of those products themselves. That's right. Um, Electronics are very complex and they and they contain a lot of different types of material. A lot of them are rare. Um, and um, even those that aren't so rare, an incredible amount of stuff is mined just to get to those tiny, tiny amounts of material. Um, but yeah, the, the carbon emissions are also uh, really astounding. So uh, we did some life cycle assessments of, of electronics last year, and we found that in the whole life cycle of a phone, a smartphone and a laptop, 80% of the carbon emissions are produced before it even gets into your hand. So that's mining, transport, uh, production. And so you can see that the amount of the amount of time you use it for, if you can extend that, if you can double that, it's going to make a massive difference to the to the carbon footprint. So so there's a real carbon impact of of buying more and more and more, even if you take take away this the, the waste side of things. And it isn't just carbon oxy, is it's biodiversity loss, isn't it, as well, because of the where the mining is happening and the, in some cases, irreversible damage that are being done to the to the areas that are being mined for those rare and precious minerals. Yeah. And I mean, not to mention the kind of human rights aspects and water and everything else. Yeah. Yeah. So in the in the run up to COP26, we all heard over and over again um, the four things that were, you know, government wanted us to think about and know about coal, cars cash and trees and in that there's a simplicity so that individual people can sort of work out what do I need to do and in our homes and in our transport I think a lot of people understand I need to move away from fossil fuels I need to buy renewable energy I need to prepare for my next car to be electric or to use shared electric cars but one of the things that we can't do or is very difficult for us to do is to influence how products are made in the first place So on my desk here, sitting in front of me talking to you, I've got a laptop, um, a tablet and two phones. There's my work equipment, my home equipment. And they could all have been made in a a factory that's powered by a coal-fired power station, for all I know. And so we can't influence those things. And, And so if we can't influence or change those things, what we can do is reduce that, as Fiona's just said, reduce that impact of how many times we buy into that system by making our phone last two, four years longer than we did last time. So you've both been talking about, you know, the impact uh, from a manufacturing point of view uh, in terms of what's happening in factories. And, And yet what we're about to talk about is an initiative that you're both working on, which is called Fixing Factories. So I'd be really curious to hear from either of you as to where this initiative came from, who had the idea, what's the inspiration behind it? So um, the project started, um, as I guess most projects do through a set of conversations. There's a, there's a, there's a, a few partners involved in the project and it sort of evolved. So it started off with, um, we've been running restart parties um, for 10 years now and they're, they're pop-up events where people can get their electronics fixed. Um, but it's always been an ambition to have something in a more permanent space. And um, a few years ago, one of the um, organisations that we work with quite a lot possible, uh, they came up with 10 bold ideas to um, to tackle climate change. And one of them was fixing factories, which is just a great term. So we started chatting to them about it. Meanwhile, we were 
talking to West London Waste Authority and we knew that they were super keen to have something based on site. And actually, I should say, when, when we first visited um, the site of, of the Brent Fixing Factory, I was just blown away by the amount of initiatives that are happening there. There's, you know, a massive warehouse full of bikes that are going to be salvaged. And um, anyway, uh, but so that, that you know, they, they, we knew they were keen to work on it. At the same time, we had been building relationships with Ready Tech Go, um, who have who started up during the pandemic to take old laptops, refurbish them, and then give them to people who were suddenly finding themselves not able to function because we moved to a really digital world. Um, so all of these things kind of fell into place. And, and then at the same time, we realized there was this funding opportunity through the National Lottery Community Fund. And that's all about trying out a pilot project, figuring out how to make it work. So, so that's what really kind of made made us get get everything together and, and put in a funding application and we were delighted at the end of last year to hear that we'd we'd got the funding so from so, my perspective we've been working on reducing waste and and uh reuse projects for over 10 years and we've always been very focused on what's actually in the rubbish and i mentioned earlier that um, a lot of electronic waste is already recycled um and so although it was on our agenda it probably wasn't the highest on our agenda um, and so you'll hear different stories from different people in my organization, because I think a lot of people's um, ambitions and stories just came together at the perfect time. But my story is at the start of the pandemic, we were all uh, children. My, my son was sent home from school um, and had to start schooling from home. And he was able to access the equipment that we had at home, a home computer. And he had my hand me down phone and it wasn't a great experience for him, but he was able to adapt and learn and find new ways of schooling and communicating with his friends using this technology that we had available. And at the same time, I was watching a news article and this woman was being interviewed on her doorstep with three children and she was explaining how they were trying to do their schooling from home on a very small phone with a cracked screen. And it just broke my heart and it made me realise that our goals of reducing waste and um, increasing the length of products that are that we're seeing come through our waste streams and and her goal of wanting to be able to access technology so that her ch children could adapt and learn the way that mine had just came together and so it made me realize that actually it's not what's in the waste that's the most important thing, which is what we've been focusing on. It's what is the need? What's the product or the material that actually has a home to go to? Who wants it and how do we get it to them? So that, that that's my uh, that's my own individual one. But there are others in our organization who um, have been working on this for a long time. So I do think that there's a number of things came together all at once. I'm really delighted by the idea of Ready Tech Go. I mean, apart from the fact it's a great name, um, you know, I love the idea that 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 you could take something that you know might seem a redundant end of life product for somebody, refurbish it, and give it a whole new life for somebody who's really got a need, just like you, you, you've been describing, Emma, because that's incredibly important. Um, and it really is the circular economy at work here isn't it it's actually saying this product doesn't need to go into a recycling stream it can go back into a reuse scheme um but but so much of what we do when we purchase things is 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 we're at the the we're really at the mercy of the manufacturer aren't we and we're under that huge pressure to keep buying and under that pressure to buy the latest upgrade the latest you know you never get away from it you constantly get calls from people saying you know upgrade your phone all of these things 
And, and I think that there's this, we have built in obsolescence in a lot of a lot of the objects that we buy, not just electronics, but a lot of the, the things that we buy. I mean, they are designed to become out of date. So we then want the next one. How do you tackle that? Because, because you know, very often you'll find that the latest package for something won't work on your phone or laptop because they want you to buy the next model up. So, so how do you how do you get around the built-in obsolescence? Firstly, to make those products still still valuable for someone else, and and how are we going to be able to tackle some of that expectation of built-in obsolescence across other things that go beyond perhaps just you know phones and electronics? Well, um, so just in terms of the broader issue of built-in obsolescence, um, another part of what we do is we campaign for a right to repair, which means that manufacturers have to make things so um, and support them afterwards. So that's support them both with spare parts, with information on how to repair things and also software. So that's a big part of what we do because we're, we're aware that you can't just tackle things at the waste end. Um, but in terms of at the fixing factory, we so Ready Tech Go have have a kind of um, a set of criteria for the sorts of laptops that they can fix. But what we're we're keen to do is is work with them and work with other projects to figure out how we can kind of push the boundaries a little bit further. So often um, often there's a requirement that if if the laptop can't support Windows um, Seven, then you can't you can't upgrade it. But we know that you can't. There are workarounds so if 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 it's too old to work with with something like mac os or or windows you can actually use a different operating system which is called linux and that because it's kind of crowdsourced and crowd supported it's always updated and you can get different versions of it some of which um if it's a really old um laptop um the the, the slightly older versions use up less power and then there's there's um tricks uh like using um a solid an ssd a solid state drive and instead of the hard drive and then that that helps it function quicker so so we're trying to see kind of how much of this we can bring in and then kind of turn into a bit of a, a process that that means that we can save more more laptops but 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 you're right it, uh, there are a lot of them that are just too old to save and that's often because of software software sports which is ironic because actually the older they are the easier they are to repair from a mechanical and you know tech from a from a physical point of view um so we're just that's that's what's great about it being a pilot project we can play around and we can try and see how 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 much we can actually save the other thing that um that we do with citing the fixing factory at abbey road recycling center and there's hundreds of thousands of people who go to abbey road and so just seeing it will get people to think um and act differently um, it will give them some confidence to exert consumer p- power um, to ask for something different of the companies that make these things. And also the link that we have um, with training and skills and learning and development on site means that we're training the designers of the future um, who will then be going into places of work and will be wanting to work at the places that are thinking the most progressively about this. And so that in itself creates a, a different kind of demand too. I was going to say it's beyond Brent as well, isn't it? So that, that's what was really exciting that there's um, in two other waste um, facilities in West London, that there are a donate boxes now for laptops. So, so we don't even have to come to Brent to, to learn about the project. You can kind of um, also learn about it at the other places. Yeah. And, and that's wonderful. That's really important, isn't it? And that's really what, what, what you know, Carbon Copy are trying to do is to spread best practice. I have to ask, I'm assuming you mean the Abbey Road. 
Um, and there's people with recycled laptops standing on the famous um, zebra crossing to help promote it. Um, it, it, it. How can how can people be sure that when they drop that laptop in that box that they're not giving away their personal private data because so much of our lives is is controlled and and managed on the electronic devices that we have you know on our desks and in our pockets so um we um we have very clear requirements that all volunteers will be trained in data wiping there'll be um so, so that's that's just a given nothing nothing will happen to the laptops until the data has been cleared there are some uh devices uh, particularly mac ones which we just won't if if they're not unlocked by by the donor, um, we just won't be able to get into and and wipe it, let alone do anything else. So there'll be some that we just can't we just can't get into, but those that we can, the data will be wiped. It's a really really important point, and it's one of the things that we'll be able to measure um, as a result of the um, the whole project because um, we know that there's a lot of electronic devices just being stored at home because people are worried about their data. So for us, it's quite an important thing um, to be measuring and making sure that we're giving people enough confidence um, that when they hand over their laptop, they're not handing over their data as well. You're listening to Copy This, a podcast about working together on big thinking local climate action. I'm really curious as to what a fixing factory looks like. And I I gather that you have almost two visions for what this permanent place could look like. You know, one, as we've just spoken about at the Brent waste facility. And then I gather you're also going to open another one uh, on Camden High Street. So maybe, Emma, if you can describe a little bit what the fixing factory actually looks like at your facility, and then maybe Fiona, what's your vision for what it would look like on a high street? Yep, sure. Um, we have some portal cabins on site that we use as offices, um, particularly during the pandemic. We needed to create a bit more space so that people could work on site, but not um, all in the same room. Um, and so we've given over um, one of those portal cabin offices for the fixing factory. And as you'd expect on a, a waste site, you know, it's it, it's pretty industrial. Um, but it's also well signposted and it's in a prominent place. Um, and it, it, it just is a different way. So Fiona was very kind and she said that when she arrived on site for the first time, she was really surprised to see, you know, warehouse full of bicycles. And it's, 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 the, it's got that impact. Um, but for electronics, it's sort of surprising for people that they come to a recycling centre and here is a fixing factory. And, and actually, it epitomises the future of our industry. So there are all these production facilities in the world making new products. And what we have to do is create production facilities um, that then dismantle those products in the best way possible to get them back into society. And one of my one of my favorite things about the Brent site is um, that there's this amazing e-waste sculpture of a laptop, 
it's massive you know it's kind of uh taller than me and um that's that's part of the signage so it's um i love it it's just, it's brilliantly eye-catching um so in in camden uh we are finding we're looking for the site at the moment uh, well this that will be led by our our partner possible um and that the idea is that that's on a high street so that's where you've got footfall you've got quite high visibility um and it will be more of a kind of community hub because we know that it's easier for people to to, to get to um so that will be that will be much more kind of public facing where we'll uh, there might be some repair businesses based there there um there'll be workshops and restart parties and then um but again people will be able to donate things uh, electronics that they don't want to use anymore and then they can be fixed and and passed on to people who need them more so it will be a slightly different kind of mix of activities um but yeah the same principle and it's really clever to be able to measure these two different things because we're the place that people bring obsolete stuff to. So how much of it really is obsolete? Um, how many more people can we get on board as a result of some of the, the publicity for what we're doing? And on the high street, that's places where people go to buy things, to purchase new stuff. So how how many people can be persuaded to repair and reuse instead of purchasing new so you get some really good different metrics out of the two projects Mm. and I think people do want to repair things don't they I mean if you think about one of the most popular tv shows on at the moment is the repair shop people absolutely love the idea that something can be brought back to life and something can be 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 given a new lease of life for themselves or for someone else so so that desire of the kind of make do and mend that that we all thought of so much was kind of part of our kind of national psyche um you know not that long ago, you know, certainly in my parents' generation and certainly when I was growing up, that was something that, you know, you, you didn't necessarily throw stuff away. You repaired it and you kept it going. And so it's there, I think. We just need to reawaken it, don't we? And and actually make it feel like a like, like a positive rather than a the, the, than a negative. I wonder if I can ask you, though, a bit a little bit about, um, you know, the, the reskilling opportunities and the growth opportunities for this, because this seems to me to be something that um, could be scalable quite significantly if we had enough political policy financial will to do this we could have a kind of fixing factory or a you know an electronic repair place on every high street in every town across the country do you sense that there's an appetite for that Fiona and and, and what would it take for that to happen Oh yeah, there's absolutely um, an appetite for that, and that's the dream that we'd have this everywhere. And um, and I suppose what it comes down to is is just economics at the moment because things um, once once we started making things with machines, it became a lot a lot cheaper and quicker to create new things than repair. And that's when it then we start when we started shifting away from repair. Uh, but we know that there's a lot more interest now. There's a lot more environmental. Um, awareness and it's one of the repair is one of the most tangible things that you can do there's so many things to do with climate change that you just don't really see the impact but throwing some physically throwing something away or or physically repairing it um really works for people um but yes so again like i said this is this is a, a a pilot project which we're we're developing this year. We're trying to figure out how to make it work, but absolutely the aim is to scale it up. So so after this, we hope that we'll be able to get more funding to actually then to then ter- 
to, to do exactly that, scale it up, try it out in new areas. I, I had a, I was having a conversation with somebody who runs a repair cafe up in Chesterfield the other day, and she wants to open up something on the high street, but you know, she needs support. You need a, you need a template, you need a blueprint. So we're, we're going to be figuring out that out this year. And, and I, I doubt we will get to the point of um, figuring out a business case, which, which um, illustrates how you can make, open up a self-sustaining business immediately to to fix things but it might be that you can get there after a few years so we hope to be able to model that and yeah make it more 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 self-sustaining i think the design is the key it's the design of the products in the first place is really important um the resources and waste strategy that the government published several years ago talks about the importance of design of consumer knowledge and of waste management Um, and so what we're doing with this project is is giving government a really good case study on you know what can happen when you change things I think from the the ordinary person's perspective repair and reuse is so much harder than it used to be you have to try numerous places in order to find where and how you can get things repaired. And often it appears more expensive than throwing away and starting again. And so that's the thing that we have to challenge if we're to scale this up. It, it isn't more expensive. It's just who pays. Um, and, and that's what we need to challenge and how we have to challenge it. When I listen to your description you know, both of both these concepts, and I think that people have heard of repair cafes, and I'm, in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, what are some of the differences? And I think one of the things that strikes me is, apart from the ambition that you have, is the integration of the different kinds of organizations and that you are ambitious in, in, in going further in terms of uh, training, skills development, et cetera, as being really central to the core offering. Uh, and I'm wondering, are there any other aspects if people go, well, that's, uh, you know, we've got a repair cafe what is it in your in your blueprint uh, of a fixing factory that you would say it's it's a repair cafe plus you know we're going we're doing some extra things here with this concept what would they be well i think the most uh, immediate difference is that uh, the fixing factories are kind of a fixed space so that they're, they're always there often um, repair cafes are pop up events that are once a month some are one once a week, but most are less frequent than that. So the idea is that there's there's a, a physical space that you can just go, which which helps, I think, with getting people to think about repair as an easier thing to do. Um, so that's that's different. But then, yeah, the other thing that we're doing is we're really keen to kind of that these fixing factories really benefit the local area. And so um, and so we're trying to involve people who might not naturally get involved in, in fixing. So we particularly young people and people that, that could actually be the fixers of the future. So um, we are running a course alongside it with another partner called Merit, who um, who are just who are going to train people on how to take apart and put back together um, laptops and computers so that they can become fixers. And then and then even for those that, that can't go on the course, there'll be volunteering opportunities and we'll be making links with repair businesses and potential refurbishment so that there's a bit of an employment pathway through through the um, the project and and what we really hope is that we will be kind of helping the sort of people who who might be outside the traditional kind of employment and education pathways and that but this could be something that they're really good at and that just could be their niche so uh, that's one of the most exciting things we're working with local partners to try and learn from them what how we can do that best yeah I'd agree with that it's about the supply chain the waste comes at us no matter what it just keeps coming but people want to do the right thing with it. And so that waste can be used 
to give people opportunities that they wouldn't otherwise have. It can be used for training and learning. You know, if the people who are training and learning might damage the goods in in the pro- process of, of learning, you know, it, there's no harm done. It was going to be thrown away. It can be used for people to fix their own goods. And then there are so many different ways in which it can benefit that local community. Um, it's quite difficult to just rattle them off because it, it just can go in so many different directions all at once. And what we expect to happen is that things we haven't thought of will be brought to us as ideas and we'll be asked, why aren't you doing this? Why can't you do that? You know, how about, you know, something else? Um, and that's when the community is entirely engaged in what we're doing. And actually they're then taking these valuable materials and products and, and using it for their good. So what we do is we measure social value and we're doing that on a number of projects and it just gives us an insight into those benefits that aren't within our organization, but that are as a result of the things that we're doing. And Emma, I think that's a great point to to finish on, which is I think we need to find ways to encourage everyone to repair where they can and to make it easier make it easier in terms of the products themselves, make it easier in terms of the places to find, to go to, the training, so that I can then do some of these things myself. There's so many elements that you're bringing together uh, in, in this concept. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Um, and also what I take away as something really exciting is that from the get-go, you have a vision of this is a blueprint. This is something that you wish to roll out and for many more people to copy a fixing factory where they are. And that for me is, is a very exciting opportunity for so many more people. And so I want to thank you both, Emma and Fiona, for, for what you're doing, for sharing this awesome initiative with us. And I wish you all the best and success. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I'd absolutely echo that. And you're absolutely right, Rick. I mean, uh, we repair because we care. And I think that's just, you know, you, what a shining example of a, a project for everyone to copy. So um, so thanks both for, for being with us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. For more information about today's episode, check out carboncopy.eco forward slash copy this. Join in the conversation by following us on Twitter and using the hashtag copy this pod. Until next time, 